but it yeah it doesn't in matter. case there's we have so many technical issues like on underscore the show i do with marty uh we one of our first composer interviews like his laptop crashed and like his interface was mm. all uh and we lost some chunks of it so that was unfortunate so yeah, yeah you can never have too many i guess yeah, when Marty, whenever Marty comes on the show, I always get this vibe that he's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi to you guys. <laughs> he's got this sense right. of just like, he's got this calm sort of wisdom about him, which, mm-hmm. I mean, you guys do as well, obviously, but it's it's just cool to see well, him I get think on. Marty it's is like very a, measured. He's, yeah, he's very, very controlled yeah. in the way that he speaks, and he's someone who has taken in a lot of experiences and a lot of life. And I do think he's someone I would describe him as as very wise. Um, I think Carl and I on our podcast, it tends to be just very off the cuff. We don't think mm-hmm. about things too much before we say them. I mean, I think both of us are kind of thoughtful. We do think about the topics a lot. Um, but yeah, Marty is definitely much more measured. And the thing just for me, Carl is eight years older than me and Marty is 12 years older than me. So wow. I really grew up idolizing them but marty since he is so much older and he often for many of my formative years wasn't around the parental kind of uh role for a while because you were so young it's almost like the way that a kid in a divorced family with you know the dad estranged they start to like really idolize their dad because he's not around i don't want to say marty marty was a great brother he was he was around but it's just you know when i was going into kindergarten he was starting college except for that one time that he did divorce the family that was really awkward (laughs) wow this just got deep do we want to go this hardcore this early into the uh, interview we shouldn't we shouldn't okay (laughs) well i want to ask you guys what was it about video game music? Because I know, Carl, you also do, uh, you have a band. Is that right? That's true. Okay. Yeah, so, so I have a funk fusion band in Minneapolis where I live uh, called Carl B. and the Soul Surgeons. Uh, and, and I've been in bands before that ever since I was in high school. So, um, so yeah, that's one of the things that keeps me active performing these days. So I know, uh, obviously, it's not exclusively video game music that you guys like, but what was it about video game music? That kind of made you guys want to devote such a huge chunk of your creative life to it, because you—I mean—you're incredibly prolific. You have tons of albums on on your Bandcamp, and obviously your podcast has been going for going strong for how many years? Five years? Six years? <sighs> Over six, five years? Five and, five and a half? Yeah, I think with video game music, it wasn't ever a conscious choice of like, oh, you know right. what? I'm gonna like this. It just was always there. Mm-hmm. Ever since we started playing like Sonic on the Genesis, I, I remember the day Marty got hey man, bro. for That's Christmas. First game. First game. Yeah, yeah, when he got the Genesis for Christmas, and I was probably about six or something at the time, and and just li- playing Sonic and Sonic Two like every day, literally, mm-hmm. and just hearing those uh, melodies and those grooves, and just really liking them. They just felt really comforting. Mm-hmm. Um. And then, you know, other things, other games as well, like Aladdin on the Genesis and some some LucasArts PC games and Mario and stuff. Um, Yeah, they were just always around. And it was always something that I didn't hear the limitations. I didn't hear, you know, these crappy FM instruments. I just heard uh, pleasing music. Mm -hmm. And I think later on when I started to write my own music when I was maybe about 12 or so, I started to use uh, a, a MIDI program called Cakewalk. And I then realized even more just how influential video games were because the stuff I was writing was very uh, old school video mm-hmm. game style. And yeah. so, yeah, it just it's always had a really big uh, imprint on on us, all of us, I think. 
Well, I I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Will. Oh, sorry. Well, I, I just think for, for me, growing up with these older brothers, and I was also playing all of their old games, so I also grew up with kind of the same era of video games and game music that Carl and Marty did, just as sort of a hand-me-down. But I, I think I had this added benefit. I mean, so much of the music, you know, like Koji Kondo, though those tunes are so catchy and memorable. There's something that, you know, any kid would naturally gravitate mm-hmm. to. But also, since my brothers were older and a bit more evolved musically, they were actually able to articulate some things. Like, I remember, you know, Marty was always talking about musical concepts. Even when I was really young, he would talk about melody and harmony and these ideas. And so I would hear them in this video game music. I mean, we have old uh, VHS footage of me running around the house as like a four-year-old just singing, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Yeah, Mario 64 was awesome. I think another thing for me that really solidified video game music as being a legit, like, living, breathing thing was that um, when I first got my drums, when I was nine, I got my first drum set. And ever since then, me and Marty pretty much were jamming all the time. Uh, Him on guitar, me on drums, just for years, just in... You know, in his room, just we just had the drum set up and we would just jam and we would jam on video game music, you know, like Spring Yard Zone, Green Hill Zone. We would we would jam on that stuff. And so there was no line between like what is real mm-hmm. music. It was mm-hmm. just that was just music that was really fun to to jam and to listen to. Well, I remember uh, when you guys were talking about I don't remember what episode of the podcast it was, but uh, Will, you kind of had this monologue which I always, I smile when I hear it about the end credits of Sonic 2 and how it like brought a tear to your eye, uh, especially when he's floating down and then Tails picks him up on the, on the airplane. You talked about like that pixel art and just how it brought back those memories. And it's emotional. Dude, I was smiling on my way to work listening to that because that I, I was, I'm 27 and I was maybe five or six when I got yeah, that. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. And man, it, it I completely relate to that. So aside from just that, the way that the music fits with it, just so, it's so beautiful. And then just the animations and right. yeah, it's powerful. The stuff. triumphant, like, uh, like flat six, flat seven, one, when he, he finally yeah. lands on the plane, it's like perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, right. were there any <laughs> other key moments maybe in your childhood where just video game music just like hit you in the gut with just emotion. I think uh, credits music in general is a thing that, (laughs) that tends to do that. And we've talked about this a lot on our podcast that I think for some of the early video game composers, they looked at it, I almost imagine it like a play or a musical. And the credits were the moment when, you know, the curtain closes and opens again and the entire cast stands there and bows. It's kind of the breaking of the fourth wall, the acknowledging of the player. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes in games, you know, even like Metroid, uh, that credits music is really dancey and upbeat, completely at odds with the kind of dark and gritty atmospheric sound of that score. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because of that, a lot of composers, maybe they almost thought like, not many people are going to get to the credits. So I really want it to feel like a party. I want it to feel like this emotional journey. For me, any Koji Kondo credit sequence, whether it's linked to the past or particularly my favorite is Super Mario World. Mm. I mean, the way it really tells a story with that one theme, and it's a theme that you haven't heard anywhere else in the game until that moment, but it's just such a fantastic melody. And the way 
he paints it, you know, with this sort of straight ahead swung feel. And then eventually there's this up tempo thing. And in the middle, there's this slow, like lullaby presentation. It, it's such a beautiful piece, how it's composed. And I remember even as a kid, I would just be mesmerized. Mm-hmm. By well, the also Mario, Mario 64 was very powerful yeah. for both oh, of yeah. us. Um, it's the first thing that it, made me cry. That's the another example of a, a new theme that you haven't heard mm-hmm. throughout that game. And, and it's just really pretty and it's just very poppy and it just feels good. And that, that was one that, that struck clearing us out your locker last day of high school sort of mm-hmm. feeling particularly, I mean, uh, that that piece of music, just the rhythms of that melody, the the chord progression, it, it it's something that very sweet. You know, it touched me when I was incredibly young, and I feel like it can still touch me in the same way. And I'm noticing all the time within my own music, and e- even when I'm not trying to evoke uh, video game music, like I wrote this choral piece two years ago that we performed, and it wasn't until after it was even performed that I realized. Wow, so much of this piece is influenced from that Mario mm-hmm. 64 and credits mm-hmm. from the chords to the rhythms of the melody. Yeah. And yeah. It, it's just, I don't know, that stuff is such a part of my DNA. Um, There's a lot of that, moments like that that I can think of. Another one off the off the cuff is um, the opening of Secret of Monkey Island. I yeah. remember the first <laughs> time I, I saw that, that and I heard that. Uh, I was just so blown away and so uh, transported to that island. Mm-hmm. Melee Island. It just that it's like a Michael movie Lance too. Music is just yeah. so integral to that game. So that that was another big one. Also, was, I remember the first time seeing the opening kind of cinematic to Ice Cap Zone when when Sonic is oh, uh, yeah. you know snowboarding down and that and that baseline that groove kicks in. That mm-hmm. that was just one of the coolest things I had ever heard at that point. So cool. And then the music perfectly transitions when you go into the cavern. Yeah, it's, it's just yeah. great. Another good one. I, I listen to a lot of uh, video game music while I work, and the Wind Waker staff role was like mm, making yeah. my eyes well up with tears. Yeah, because it would bring back sure. the title theme, uh, sort of swashbuckling theme, but then also bring in all the other motifs from the game, and mm-hmm. it was just like, wow, this is hitting me right in the feels. You know yeah. what? Speaking of Zelda, obviously there there were many more examples throughout my life, but there is a, a a more recent Zelda memory I have. When I was in college, one of my good friends and roommates, uh, his name was Mitch. He got a Wii the the day it was released. Like we, I went with him to like Shopco or something. We stood in line, and he got Twilight Princess and a Wii. And and I remember the first time hearing that the Ordon Village theme, yes. and yeah. just. I remember just being so comforted by that. Like it was just like another classic, um, very humble Zelda theme. So that, that, that was cool because I hadn't really necessarily played a lot of Zelda games at that point. So for me to kind of really be moved by that was, I think, really impressive. Yeah. I want to uh, talk to you guys about the way that you deconstruct songs. And you've touched about this a little bit on the podcast, but... So there's obviously we you know the on the on the internet there's video game covers everywhere but you guys are some of the first people that I've discovered that actually create music in the style of a certain right. video game because before mm-hmm. I listened to the Super Mercado Bros podcast I actually found you guys through I don't remember how your Bandcamp page and I listened to Hello World and, and what blew me away is not that you guys just like wrote these songs and then put a Super Nintendo sound font on top of it, 
but you, you right. captured the spirit of Koji Kondo. I mean, it was well, just we like, wrote it. Well, we wrote it for those sounds too. Like we we went out of our way to to make something that was from the very beginning written with that palette in mind. Um, and and you know there were a couple of things that I saw online here and there, uh, mostly very gimmicky, where someone got a sound set and and they just thought it was cool to make like a Super Mario Kart song. So they just made something new, but they never really were focused on like kind of capturing the musical elements of that. So there were a few things that I saw here and there, but yeah, we we had a very different approach to those projects and we really wanted to try to imagine a world where there was some alternate reality or some lost sequel Mm. of those games and just try to see if we can go back to that world really just because we loved those worlds, those musical worlds and those emotional worlds. And we just thought it would be fun just for our own, you know, enjoyment to, to go back to that. And the fact well, that I, other people enjoy it is a bonus. I think in addition to that, well, first of all, thank you for those kind words, Matt. Course, yeah. um, that That's one of the things that I think I'm most proud of and great memories that I have collaborating with Carl and Marty on uh, that project and Koji Kondo is my favorite composer and I I see him up in the ranks of the great classical composers he's up there you know with uh, Tchaikovsky and you know Chopin For to sure. me um, and it, not even just in you know oh people will say oh he writes great catchy tunes but no the, there's there's a sophistication and a precision to every single note mm-hmm. and that's why I, I, I put him um, among those ranks to me I, I never t- I never tire of studying his music you know I, I always can learn something different and I'm always in awe of uh, his music so it, to me it's a very natural thing to want to uh, as a composer myself, learn that these are tools, you know, that it, it's not just about those specific melodies, but he's almost creating a genre, you know, with those Mario scores that he wrote, he was doing so much new that I think we felt, you know, you could write, you could write more themes that could almost exist under the ab- umbrella of quote unquote Mario music without you know plagiarizing existing themes and it was a great learning tool because it forced you to understand what kinds of chords is he using how does he write melodies we describe mm. his melodies as simple but are they scalar melodies or are they just outlining yeah, think, chord tones it, you kind of yeah. have to dig into what makes this good and i would well, love I think that as a composer that's to, the best thing to your question as far as like what was the process or what is our process for like breaking the stuff down Mm -hmm. really what it starts with is taking a piece that we're just moved with um and we might just do this on our own anyway and just sitting down at the piano and trying to figure it out by ear Mm -hmm. that's the best way to learn it so figure out the melody figure out the chord progression figure out the harmony uh what's happening at the same time why does something work uh and then figure out maybe the rhythmic elements to it the bass line the, you know, the instrument choice, thinking about why why does this ensemble sound good uh, together. But really, that that's where it starts, is sitting down at the piano and just and just figuring out thy ear. And, and the more notate, you do that... Do you notate anything while you're doing this, or is it mostly uh, just kind I've, of I've done that on Rarely. Um, a couple occasions, when um, for Hello World, actually, before... Because mm-hmm. the boss battle track was something I wrote. Um, and I wanted to model it after uh, Koji Kondo's piece from Super Mario World. And 
that was something that really scared me because it was it was such a complex like singular piece of music it didn't sound like anything else he'd ever done Mm -hmm. you know it had this progressive rock sound to it but just the specifics of that kind of like shredding solo i really did want to deconstruct it by ear so i actually did create a piece of sheet music for for that one just to kind of as a learning which um, makes sense Mm-hmm. It's so specific. Most but a of the lot time, of times, no. yeah, it is. It is. It is by ear, and part of that is we don't have the luxury of a lot of good sheet music for this. Most of the stuff that you would find online is just by other people, and quite often, I'm dissatisfied with the sheet music you find online. It's incorrect, or it's been simplified, or it's mm-hmm. kind of someone's memory of it. And particularly in the case of Koji Kondo, or really any of the great eight-bit or sixteen-bit composers, it's not just the melodies and harmony. It's the way things are voiced. You know, with Koji yeah. Kondo's NES music, for instance, take the Super Mario Brothers theme. The the beginning of the A section starts with a C major chord, but and we have all three pitches of it, but it's not in a closed position. Right. In fact, you know, you you have these very spread out chords with the fifth on the bottom and then the third and then the root all the way on top. Right. And everything kind of moves in parallel you know when you play it on the piano your fingers almost look like they're in a claw position right and a lot of times when people play that that song or will cover it not only will they incorrectly you know play notes of the melody but they'll kind of miss the whole character of that spread voicing yeah it's interesting it's very that's, eclectic it's that's so definitely interesting the most well-known video game song and maybe the most performed video game song but mm. it's probably out of anything the one that gets wrong the most like, yeah it's all all the time people people just don't get the harmonies right but yeah one really important element of breaking down a piece of video game music is getting the voicings that's that's one of the biggest learning moments uh, a lot of times we have access to the actual sound files where we're able to listen to one channel at a time and hear okay uh, this chord this electric piano uh, chord thing is basically three different channels how are they getting these complex jazz changes with three channels? What are the voicings they're using? Mm. And many times they're very hip voicings that any anyone in the world of jazz would really like and, and right. agree with. Like this is a great voicing. And so right. and so yeah, it's not just the melodies and, and the harmonies, but it's the the exact voicings too. So well, that's that's what the you can limitations learn from it. force you to actually think back to what you would have learned in school or in a theory class, which is understanding the nature of uh, triads or extended chords for that matter. And that really, if you want it to sound like a chord, you need the root and you need the third. Mm-hmm. So if you right. only have three pitches. You can't have both the seventh and ninth and still sure. have the third. But sometimes, you know, you can have chords that don't have thirds in them or don't have roots. There can be kind of weird chord constructions. Right. Um, so it's really fascinating studying this music. And you also start to notice quirks of maybe a particular company. Like we've talked before, maybe Capcom has a sound mm-hmm. or Nintendo has a sound. Whether Sounds it's off in their bass. Yeah, their harmonic language yep. or, yeah, the implementation of the notes. Um, sometimes we find with a lot of video game music that is rock oriented, you know, they're they're occasionally trying to evoke the sound of power chords, which would be like a parallel fifths. Or mm-hmm. what I find with a lot of the Japanese composers, they they really love using fourths, um, mm-hmm. either in like a quartal harmony kind of way, especially if it's supposed to be something scary or ominous. I mean, just listen to the music of. Uh, Joe Hisaishi, if he's ever trying to do like a villainous cue, it's all these kind of barbaric sounding fourths. And I think 
that had a tremendous impact on a lot of video game composers. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Koji Kondo or Yuzo Koshiro or Uematsu or really anybody working in games in that kind of heavy use of fourth harmony interspersed with you know thirds and sixths and everything mm-hmm. to me that's something that i really associate with the sound of video games particularly you know when you're just using a few voices you mm-hmm. can have a rock track that sounds like it's the melody is harmonized just in thirds but then you have those certain moments where there are no thirds and they switch to like parallel fours yeah so I think there's a lot of obviously as as we've been mentioning there's a lot of musical things to 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 learn but the 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 last thing that we were really focusing on especially for a project like Hello World was the technical the ways that Koji Kondo implemented it on the Super Nintendo and mm-hmm. trying to really listen to those and, and, and emulate those as closely as we could. Yeah. The way he uses vibrato, the way, uh, the range that he uses certain instruments, he'll, he'll never go above this note on this instrument, so let's not mm. do that, because otherwise it won't sound like Mario World. So so listening to how those composers implemented on the the very hard limitations of the time, that's a the last thing that is is really valuable to learn. So would you say for a beginner, say, to, to really nail the composition and arrangement first before moving toward things like implementation and sound design? Absolutely. I completely, that's because how I feel. Okay. I feel like you can't, you, you can't be good at all of it right away, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the implementation, the production side in general, is something that takes a long time to develop. You really have to develop your ear, and you really have to develop an ability to listen for subtleties in music. Um, but while that's happening, you shouldn't waste your time. Like, keep writing. I mean, right. you you have to you have to start making music that sounds terrible at first, yeah. and maybe that's maybe good. it'll have good melodies there. Maybe the the actual material will will be good, hopefully. But it might not sound very good, and that's okay. Right. You just have to keep going, and I, eventually I, you'll you'll get there. I really agree with Carl in the sense that I think sometimes don't people don't appreciate that really to be a musician and create a finished product requires all these separate tasks. It's not just one job. Mm-hmm. And so people think, you know, I'm getting better as a musician because I'm spending time, you know, maybe I'm learning how to use FL Studio or something and now I'm becoming a musician. But you're only learning one of the responsibilities of being a musician. And for me, I feel like if you want to write music, if you want to be a composer, you need to understand pitch you need to understand melody harmony arrangement orchestration these kind of concepts that relate to all disciplines of music and i think like carl said you don't need to learn one first and learn you should be doing everything simultaneously but i think the danger of um focusing too much on the technical aspects first is it can be very influential into the way in which you write and so if you're someone with a lot of facility but not a lot of knowledge about how music actually works like mm. on a theory level i think you'll quickly find yourself going down the same types of corridors again and again the same right. way that people that just rely on an inst- like if they have bad piano proficiency um, maybe if they don't challenge themselves a lot of their music will kind of reflect that and the chord choices they use will be the sure. result of well, just also what like, they can physically do with their fingers sure. there'll be me- there, there won't be melodies that will be that complex because they couldn't play those melodies to begin with sure. another another thing is like 
forcing yourself to, in addition to learning the fundamentals of music, forcing yourself to listen to and critically listen to as many different genres of music as possible. Yeah. And, and if good. you yeah. force yourself to write in genres that are outside your creative box, then you're going to learn new things. Like, let's say you love rock and you have a guitar and you have an Mbox and you have Pro Tools and you like recording rock songs and that's all you do. Try to write a jazz song. Yeah. You might not know anything about jazz, but listen to it. Try to figure out what kind of chords are they using. Why does it sound the way it does? Mm. You'll learn a lot of things that you could then apply to rock and reply to a lot of genres. But if you don't go outside your comfort zone, you're never gonna you're never gonna evolve. Mm -hmm. Well, That's and I I really agree with that, Carl. And it's almost like it's similar. Understanding using different chords are, are just like any great tool. It's kind of like understanding the orchestra. It's a lot to manage, the, to tackle, you know, all the types of interesting harmonic things you can do is really daunting the same way that looking at all the different instruments in the orchestra is daunting. Mm -hmm. But really, you can communicate a lot just with a flute. You can communicate a lot just with a violin. And so I think, you know, you don't need to learn every kind of crazy chord before you get started. Sure. Just knowing one thing that's maybe a little bit spicy, it it gives you a point of contrast. You know, maybe if you were just playing with diatonic chords and you learn this one chromatic chord that you understand and you can use consistently for a certain emotional effect, yeah. sure. it just opens up a whole new broad set of colors. And I mean, I find myself still... Uh, I'm I'm constantly learning um, new harmonic choices, and it just comes from listening to music, uh, studying music, and um, yeah. I when I, when I think about that question, as far as like what's the best way to get started in, in composing, maybe what are some things that aren't as useful, or, or you know maybe what's you know what's important, what's not important. The more I think about it, I think about it like tools in a toolbox and the more tools you have the bigger toolbox you have the better composer you're going to be and some examples of tools will be listening to different genres of music and trying to replicate those techniques uh knowing a lot of different kinds of chords a lot of different kinds of um tonalities major mm -hmm. you know major minor modes things like that also, you know, owning different mics, owning different pieces of software right. and virtual yeah. instrument. Those are all different tools that you can add to your tool belt. But you should always be trying to expand that tool belt. Mm -hmm. And you should never just stick with, I have these three and that's, and that's what I have. And I, I'm not interested in learning well, and learning anymore. And along with that, and something that specifically I would say pertains to Carl's music, and I think the music of any good composer, it's not just understanding melody, chords, rhythm, all these things. Uh, the concept of whether you want to call it orchestration or arranging. Mm -hmm. To me, video games were a great learning tool because of the limitations. Composers had to be very economical yeah. and communicate very succinctly. So every maybe it's just every monophonic channel has its own specific function and you start to understand what what is the role of a bass instrument what is the role of a supporting instrument what's the role of a melody instrument and once you get into you know sega genesis and super nintendo they still couldn't have you know lush elaborate orchestrations sure. but you start to notice there's a principal element like a melody element there's a, a bass element there's a percussion element and then there's something that's not only giving chords but it's giving groove and everything has to lock in together mm -hmm. i say this relating to Carl because I think one of his great skills in kind of his retro or, or chip music type of stuff is there's usually a lot of things going on simultaneously. It's not that it's 
simple where there's maybe very Masato Nakamura esque. Yeah, like Carl, you just made that that video for that song, like Fly the Coop. <coughs> Fly the Coop, yeah. And he has uh, he he's sort of filming all of the different parts that are going on, and you know, there's there's multiple guitar tracks, there's all these different keyboards and synths, and it doesn't it doesn't sound like ugh, that's too much. Chaotic. Everything yeah. locks in with each other. Well, yeah. well, I'm it, that's a really big skill, and it it doesn't just apply to writing for a big band or writing for an orchestra it mm. it applies on every level understanding the fundamentals of like what is the missing energy you know what yeah. isn't there that can be added to yeah. give a little bit more rhythmic color or flavor well, to the well harmony. i'm so glad that you brought that up because that is one of the most important things you can learn from video game music and you can learn learn it from a lot of different genres it's, it's almost like a it's a puzzle right there's all these puzzle pieces that inter that interlock together and certain pieces won't fit right uh, and so it's about coming up with an entire picture. Like when you finish a puzzle, it's you know made up a lot of different puzzle pieces, and it looks really beautiful. But it only works because the the pieces fit together in the right way. So so listening, how how can you really have? In some ways, it, it's weird on paper. A bass, a melody, drums, chords, uh, a counterline, an arpeggio, a pad, maybe a separate riff. A harmony. How can you really have all that happening at once and not make it sound just like absolute mush? Mm -hmm. It's not easy, right? You have to try to figure out a way for, like what Will was saying, the different energies, right? So like if the bass has a certain uh, rhythm, a rhythmic energy or harmonic energy, you might want to contrast that with another element. Mm. Uh, you don't want things to get in the way of each other. So Really, it's just kind of like building a, a really complex musical puzzle. Now, is that process for you, Carl? Because I know um, I've listened to all your Sonic Asks albums. They're fantastic, by the way. I, I'm not oh, just thanks, saying man. this. They could absolutely be Masato Nakamura songs. Will, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't so you agree, much. Will? I know you you believe it. I, I very much agree. Yeah. In fact, when Carl started writing those albums um, it, it was like this time where he had just finished college and was, was living before at Marcado home Marcado Bros. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that was hugely inspirational. So I know Marty as well. Also, the idea of like, what if you wrote original music going back into the style of an existing composer? And yeah. you know, we, weird. all of us love Sonic so much that I remember just being really excited. You know, what was Carl going to do next? And also mm -hmm. learning the tools of how to create Sega Genesis style music. Absolutely. Yeah, in some ways it was this really weird proof of concept. We're like, whoa, like what if you actually tried to go back to that style and and getting the the first step was we found this VOPM plugin which was like eye opening that we could you know hook it up via MIDI our MIDI keyboard and boom you're hearing the actual like Sega bass that you grew up with and oh, yeah. and so that was so inspirational and that just kind of that that fun and, and inspired energy really just propelled me to to make those well, the but, thing that i will give a, a great and i don't want to say a defense but something that i think carl did particularly in the first sonic esque that i don't think any other composer that's ever worked in the sonic series has captured is that sonic music to me especially when masato was doing it it had nothing to do with speed it wasn't about being fast or rocking or edgy it was about being cool yeah and to me a cool <laughs> piece of music is something that's funky and laid back and groovy Absolutely. and i know it's at odds with the fact that sonic is supposed to be running a mile an hour but to me the music in those games wasn't so much focusing on 
the envi- it wasn't so much focusing on the character of Sonic mm-hmm. and the action of the level. It was focusing on the environment yeah. and uh, the, the atmosphere that you're just supposed to experience playing the game. And so I remember when Carl made that first album, there were some comments at first that were like, this stuff is too slow. This doesn't sound like Sonic. Right. And when you go back to Masato's original demos for the first two Sonic games, some of the stuff is so incredibly slow, mm, um, much slower than even what ended up happening in the game. And I think Carl sort of nailed his compositional voice much closer than um, well, yeah, I, most I of do the music in that series. I will say that I did take some of those comments to heart with the second volume. And if you listen to the second volume, it's just way it's faster. And it's up, almost like yeah. I'm on caffeine that whole volume. And yeah. I do think that I maybe went too far and eventually I found like, I think volume four is the, the right balance mm-hmm. of there's tracks that are laid back. There's tracks that are frantic, but it just overall the balance feels right. So there is a balance for sure, but um, it, it took a while to kind of, to kind of get that balance. I think volume one was honestly just, I wasn't thinking that much about what I was doing. I was just having fun making music and Hopefully Carl, that came across. Carl, you definitely have a style. Like I listen to Micropower as well, oh, which is yeah. fantastic. Carl has a style. You, you've got <laughs> you've got this funk that colors like all of your compositions. It's just this distinct, like soloing in a smoky bar <laughs> kind of thing on, on a on a piano. Like this funk, and even when you're writing, uh, like you, some of your, some of you guys' softer compositions, I can tell when when you're doing something on there, Carl, because it's just got this mm. funk edge. Whether it's two oh, or wow. three notes, it's just I, I and it makes you guys' style very very distinct, and I like that. You mentioned earlier that it's very difficult to put like an arpeggio, a uh, a pad, a, a harmony, a melody, a counter melody, all that stuff, without sounding it yeah. sounding like mush. So how, do, how does a beginner do that? Like, how do you think through that for you? Is it like trial and error? Like, I put this part in, yes. it sucks, I take it well, out. He's also I, a drummer, so he yeah. has this physical um, experience and relationship with mixing together all these different sounds and all these different parts and different rhythms and I do putting think them that, into a soup. that, Matt, you nailed it, though. It is trial and error. Because when you start off, you're going you're gonna to try a lot of dumb things that don't work. Remember those things times remember okay something about this arpeggio it doesn't work the best way is if you can figure out why it doesn't work and there's a good Mm. reason why uh there's there's not a lot of reasons there's only a few reasons why it won't work it's either because some note is clashing with the chords that's happening at the time a note that's outside let's say if you're playing a c major chord on a pad and the melody's evoking that if if your riff is going between f and e the f is clashing okay Mm -hmm. that's that's one possibility another possibility is that rhythmically it's clashing it's not lining up with the groove Mm -hmm. that's established elsewhere there's only a finite number of reasons why it will or won't work so Mm -hmm. ideally you can try those out figure out the times it does work why does this work for example one thing that i've been thinking about the past few weeks was is uh hikoshi hashimoto because we had an episode on him recently and his this awesome little arpeggio that he has in the racing hero BGM one, this it's this repeated arpeggio that doesn't really change. But as you if you listen to that song, there's these complex jazz chords that go all over the place, but the riff doesn't change. Because he figured out what notes are in common between all these chords. And so he's using those common notes 
to kind of pr provide well, a, a different level of context between them. And it's just well, brilliant. And the difficult thing about theory is the more advanced you get into it, it this sounds like a cliche because music people love to say this all the time, that there's no such thing as a wrong note, but it kind of is true. It's all about context and setup, yep. you know? Yeah. I mean, in, in, in a certain sense, um, you know, playing a, an F-sharp pitch over a C major chord you know, if you're soloing or something, that might sound like, oh, mistake, wrong note. Right. But if, if, if you lead into it right in the right way, then it starts to sound almost like Lydian or there's this kind of weird tritone in the Or, mix. for example, uh, let's say it's a C major world and the chords, everything is C major. Mm -hmm. Oh, you can start a melody on E flat if you go to E after and right. you make it this kind of cool Chromatic jazzy grace tones and everything. That, yeah. that stuff is all fine. It's just about the context and, and setting it up and making sure that you're like making a package for the listener that's very comfortable and they know exactly they're, they're treated well, right? So mm -hmm. that E flat doesn't just doesn't just stay in E flat. Sure. It resolves nicely yeah. to a chord that is in the chord. There's one thing I wanted to say, because Matt, you, you talked about Carl having a style, and I completely agree. And before I even started writing music, I, I was a fan of Carl, and I do think his style has been there. I mean, he, he's, he's gone maybe in, in certain directions in terms of instrumentation, but in terms of a sheer musical identity, the types of chords that Carl is drawn to, sure. uh, loves a lot of minor sevenths. That's like, when I think of a minor seventh... Favorite. I think of Carl. Like <laughs> to me, that's he's owned that that chord for me. And also with nice. his melodies, there's a lot of little touches. But one of my one of the things that I noticed the most with Carl, and I love this, is it'll be a melody where um, it's uh, it. it in, in classical music, sometimes they use the term antecedent and consequent phrases, which mm -hmm. basically just means, you know, like a, a melody that proceeds and it has a half cadence first and then it proceeds and has, you know, a, a finished cadence the second time. Um, with Carl, he'll write a lot of melodies where it's based around a central nugget. For instance, one of my favorites is da 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 um uh where like it goes up yeah. the second yeah, time and it okay. goes down the first time yeah. and mm -hmm. uh that's something that i i really love um and well, Will, there's sometimes when carl will do it where i'll just be like oh that's such a carl moment he just well, called you well first of all thanks for that will but i think one th one reason i think that's cool is because I think we both relate to that in each other's style. And that's one thing that I always really enjoy in your music is the way that you take a sequence or, or, or a nugget and you manipulate it the second time. So I think we both have a way of of really thinking sure. about how are we going to take this idea and mutate it over time. I think we we probably do different things and right. probably approach it in a different no, way. I, and But I see, I feel like I know my brothers pretty well. And there's sometimes when I'm writing a piece where I'm like, oh, Carl's going to like this because it just sounds yeah. like a Carl moment. Sure. And I have a lot where I'm writing something where I'm like, oh, I think Marty's going to like it. And sometimes when I show mm -hmm. it to them, they may like it, but they don't necessarily hear their own thumbprint in it sure. and i think that's sort of fitting that's what makes it genuine yeah. if he was aware of his own voice it mm -hmm. kind of wouldn't be genuine what i love about listening to a piece of carl is it's like when he's really being vulnerable with himself and he writes a melody that only he could write mm -hmm. um i don't know i i find that to be some of my favorite stuff and i mean i really like Thanks. both of my brothers as composers i think they're both really talented and yeah very i mean different. i think Without getting too mushy, I mean, I think we all feel the same way about all all through all the other two brothers. We just have so much 
you know, respect for, for one another. And I think we're all, all three of us are very lucky that we have these other people that we're so close with that we can be inspired by and kind of root for. And yeah, I mean, I, I definitely second that with, with Will and Marty. I just, I couldn't have, you know, more inspiring brothers to, to listen to their music and, and, you know, try to, try to be, be partners. Well, I, with them. I didn't get to tell you, I do love that song fly the coop. It's really oh, amazing. Thanks. I, I left thank a you. comment on YouTube cause I liked it so much. I figured rather than text you, I would yeah. get public information. I need those likes. That's right. Comments. Yeah. yeah. Helps thanks, with the man. SEO a little bit. Might as well show yeah, the I had, SEO. I had love. fun making that. That was my new, uh, experiment with, I recently got a GoPro. So that was my first oh, kind nice. of experiment. I'm have to check that out. Did you, did you tweet that Carl? Um, I think I did. Yeah, right, it's called Fly the Coop. Out. So that's on that's on my YouTube channel. Yeah. Cool. All right. So here's an interesting question. If so, let's say I'm a beginner. I'm a I'm a semi decent musician. I can hold my own on the on the. Is keyboard. this true? Is all this true? <laughs> I don't. You, I, you would probably have to be the judge of that. I don't know. I guess I I would call myself at least semi decent. The semi okay. the semi is very important there. I have um, a feeling you're being humble. Uh, well, I am the most humble man uh, that I know. No one so. is more humble than me. That's right. So um, if a million dollars were on the line and you had to teach me how to write a video game song, like any, any sort of piece of video game music mm-hmm. in a month. Okay. So I, I don't know anything about video game music. A million dollars so, on the so line. Originally, where, where would I, you start? Well, originally I thought that the million dollars was like, oh, you would need that much as a budget to teach you. But now you're saying it's just motivation for me to do a good job of teaching, right? Exactly. Let, okay. Let's say, so let's say let's say you get a million dollar budget and a million dollars if because my I first succeed. reaction was you don't need a million dollars to teach someone that. But if I if that was on the line, I would probably do a much better and efficient job of teaching. Well, there I you think go. it's all about if you as the student are open and really want to succeed with that. If you're open to it and you're willing to go outside your comfort zone and just push yourself, it's very possible. Hopefully you have some sort of uh, raw musical ability where you have an ear and you can hear what note sounds good and what doesn't sound good. As long as you have that, uh, I think it's just about giving you a lot of homework and almost like you're you're taking like a really big load at at college, right? You just listen to a lot of music all the time. Uh, try your best to to find moments that you like and f- figure out why they work. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I I could give you some examples of that and try to show that to you. But you do have to hear that for yourself. You do have to realize I like this sound. There's a reason why, and I can mm-hmm. probably replicate it again. Uh, and and that's kind of where I would start. Um, I think the the bottom line is though you would have to just if I had a month with this person, I would make them write every single day. Even if it's bad, I would try to take their little idea. Even if it is terrible, mm-hmm. how can we improve this? How can we get it better? And every time you come up with a new idea, it, it should get better and better. I think it's po- it's a fun uh, experiment. I, I like the idea of it. I think uh, th- there's a couple things. I think first of all, it's really it's difficult to. No one's going to achieve mastery in a month. You know, no, no, no one's going to sure. going to get to a point where it, it's just a result of time. And I mean, I mean, I have so many memories of someone explaining advanced theory concepts to me, and it was just like gibberish. I wasn't ready sure. for it yet. I couldn't take in all that information. So, but what I was still writing music at the time, and mm-hmm. I I think some of it wasn't half bad. Um, so you're always learning, but I think what I find is the more you're learning, for at least my disposition, 
I really want to create. Once I've mm-hmm. learned information, I want to put it to use. And so I think if I were teaching someone, I would maybe want to make sure that there's a focus on them, them creating and looking at that, but also a lot of emphasis on, I would spend probably way more time on us examining the music of other composers and mm. breaking yeah. down their their chord structures, breaking apart why their arrangements work, why a melody is good. I would spend probably 90% of the time doing that and maybe letting them ha- have their own time we're, we're composing. And I mean, I think... Giving yeah. critiques to that are going to be important, but sure. I think the most important thing, especially in like an early stage, is understanding other music and figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But again, whether it's a month, whether it's five months, it, it's possible to 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 get someone to a point where they can make a really yeah. good piece of video game music in a month. But it would need to be someone who is going to be just dead set on getting to that goal and sure. listening every single day, writing every day, yeah. trying to just to just get inch closer to that finish line well, so it, de- I, it depends on how motivated the student is well and it's also about context you know why why is chemical plant zone a good piece of music but also why is it good for that level and why does it mm. feel good in that game and that's something that i think those of us that love game music don't often do enough we forget that this isn't just fixed music it's like mm. film music or you know opera or theater or any kind of music that's meant to 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 support a, a story and sure. i think games are, are often not appreciated in in so many levels but i mean the best video game music is also telling a story on top of all of the other amazing things that it's doing music right because i think if you take a piece just an just any random piece of good video game music uh it's possible that a it was from a very talented composer who has a lot of natural instincts and they went with those instincts and made something pretty effortlessly that is good or the other hand whether or not it was that same talented composer it was uh the product of a lot of hard work and perseverance and and taking something that oh this works this doesn't how Mm. can i tweak it how can i get it better so and Mm. if that's possible then i think as long as you have some musical ability and you have an ear for what sounds good and what doesn't sound good i think it is possible to make good video game music you just really have to work hard what's something that you see novices and this could be in the video game composing world or just in the composition world i'm sure will you are around a lot of composers being at school for Uh it a lot of novices Yeah. yeah a lot of novices what's one thing either on the internet or in person that you see novices focus on that's a gigantic waste of time you know what's interesting? I've talked about this with Marty for years. I know that we're on the same page, and I can only imagine Will's on the same page. It definitely has to be so much focus on getting the best gear, getting yeah. just the right yeah. microphone and, and the, the best computer and what software is the best. None of that matters. None of that matters because there's great music that was that was just – made with the crappiest equipment famitracker you, you download famitracker yeah, you don't for free. need you don't need the best equipment to make good music and good equipment doesn't equal good music right uh, well, and i think the asterisk to that point is it doesn't matter if the music isn't good if the music is good i mean all those tools have uses but chances are if you're someone who's just interested in collecting more and more stuff you don't actually have a facility with any of those tools yeah. so a, a really expen- it, it would be like 
a violinist who can't bow with a nice tone, who can't yeah. play with intonition, and giving them a Stradivarius. It's, yeah, it's a I mean, waste I, of that tool. Sure. I feel really strongly about this. Uh, if I if I were going to you know start some sort of school and have like a specific philosophy on how to teach people composing, I, I think it's much more useful to just pick either whether or not you pick it or someone else picks it, just pick a small, finite set of, of this is your tools. This laptop, this sure. piece of software, these three mics, this interface, this set of virtual instruments. That's it. Try to make the best music you can with those. When yeah. you outgrow those tools and you really feel like what you, what you have in your head you can't accomplish with those tools, then start to expand. But you got to start with somewhere. And like for me, it was on Cakewalk. With general MIDI, just literally inputting with a keyboard, inputting the notes, yeah. terrible 90s general MIDI sounds. That's all I had. That's I brilliant. tried to make the coolest the coolest songs I could with those sounds. Right. And if I had <clears throat> access to just what we all have access to now, I don't think I would have been as good of a composer. Well, and I think it's kind of what I was saying earlier, where these are separate disciplines. I mean, understanding the tools and understanding technology is important for a composer, you know, living in the 21st century. But it comes. It comes in but time, it, I think. It, yeah. you, you need to understand music first. What I encounter with a lot of novices is, there. It, to me, what it sounds like a lack of commitment to an idea that they're 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 going in one direction maybe with a melody and then it's quickly abandoned short after and there's no sense that these things were composed in a fluid manner it's Why like do you, you think can they tell they Why did those two bars that? and then they do these two bars i i think what happens is sometimes maybe it's people where they're not actually playing things out they're not um Again, this is why I think the technology thing, writing on the technology before you can really play an instrument mm -hmm. is a very dangerous thing because it plays it back to you. And if you're not really discerning, you can hear a really dissonant chord moment. And like we said, since there are no such thing as wrong notes, in a, from a certain point it. of view, it can sound good. From a certain point of view, it can sound interesting, even though if it's not what you set out in to do. That's why I like Carl's idea. When you set specific parameters, it forces people to be self-critical and not so much do I like it, do I not like it? Is well, it working? Is this effective? Am I communicating what I set out to communicate? Well, cuz if sure. the goal, I guess if the goal is to make good music that other people will enjoy as well as hopefully you will enjoy, if that's the goal, um then I can tell you unequivocally you do not need the best gear to do that yeah. you can get it done with a, a very small amount of affordable tools uh, because really that that's how all three of us uh started we started with bare bones you know back when marty started uh, there wasn't as much uh thing there wasn't as much like maybe digital recording so he had a a, a four track tape recorder mm -hmm. and he and he just had a, a pretty bad acoustic guitar he made demos with that. He made sure. decent sounding recordings with that. For yeah, and me, the quality was... of those songs has nothing to do with the recording mm -hmm. because he could perform it live and there's no yeah. recording, there's no technology being involved and it's still a great piece of music. And I think sometimes we forget that music was originally created to be experienced acoustically in a live situation. And well, another... the recording process is meant to approximate that. Sure. Another aspect that uh, I think that's very true as far as like don't get too bogged down with getting the best gear is when you talk about capturing 
human performance. Yeah. If you're either a, an individual musician or a band and you are good performers and the music is actually good that you're playing and you are good at singing and performing, whatever it is, focus on that and try to have a good performance it's if if you capture a good performance, it's good. It sounds good. Sure. Uh, you can set up a few mics and do no editing, and if the performance is rock solid, that's what happens with a lot of jazz recordings. It's just live yeah, recordings. Like, why do we prefer live mics. albums of our favorite bands? Yeah. So know? it's not necessarily that it needs to be this polished thing. The performance should be great, and if the performance is great, then it's gonna be it's gonna be great. You don't have to worry about anything else. At the same time. If you have a performance that has a lot of issues and you bring it into your DAW and you try to tweak it and edit it and then fix everything, mm. you could, with a lot of work, get something that sounds good, but it's going to be much harder and much more expensive. Well, yeah. and I think one of the reasons we're, adv we're such advocates of video game music, I mean, those of us that grew up with it, yes, we have this nostalgic fondness for all the sounds, but stepping back objectively with the lens that I think a lot of non-gamers take to game music... You're dealing with crappy sounds, these primitive synthesizers, mm -hmm. especially with the early stuff. Now, mm -hmm. I like that. I can't really be objective about what component of that is my true aesthetic value of those things and what is right. simply nostalgia. nostalgia. But the point is, it's good because the music is good. Sure. It, those instruments, even if you like them, they, they definitely are not good enough on their own to communicate anything, mm -hmm. which is where I think a lot of uh, modern chiptune composers might fall short, is they're misunderstanding what was good about the music yeah. that they love. No, well, you bring up a great point. Almost out of any musical discipline, I think video game music can be the most inspiring as far as look what we can do with these limitations. So don't get too concerned with, in some ways, purposefully, don't get good equipment. Just try to make, try to download one DAW, mm. maybe a couple virtual instruments, a way to work on music either with MIDI or with sequence, whatever also, you there prefer. There are so many ways of manipulating something. You can get all these virtual instruments, but it, it's if that's what it's about, people tend to just accept what they get out of the box. I like this sound. I don't mm -hmm. like this sound. Mm -hmm. Where when you have very limited resources, it's kind of like a, a carpenter who has a very small toolbox. They start to maybe use the other side of the hammer for a different, yeah. you know, it's like yeah. when, when you just have I a like few that. basic sounds, mm -hmm. you might start to get into equalization and what timbres and frequencies can I boost to affect the sound of this instrument? Sure. Can I add reverb? Can I add effects? You start to be uh, sculpting your and sound hey, in a way that you don't when you're just kind of have this plethora of sounds and you just kind of I like it I don't like it I don't like it you know sure well also it's a it's it's a win-win because look what you're doing you're learning those new techniques to make that thing sound good that you wouldn't mm. have had to do if, if you had a more expensive mic or if you had a more expensive uh, you sure. know preamp or something so you're trying to make something sound good with with limited resources it's going to force you to to learn more tricks. It's going to make you a, a better engineer, a better musician. So yeah, I, I think we we just we all feel really strongly about limitations are a good thing. Limitations in equipment, limitations in voices, limitations in technology. Uh, limitations are a very good thing, and, and it's it's a great tool to kind of uh, get your creative juices flowing. Yeah, I think that's a very like kind of carrot on the stick thing. Having the perfect year. 
there will always be a better preamp, there will always be a better DAW, that sort of thing. But if I may, at risk of directly contradicting what we just talked about, if we can get geeky for a second and maybe talk yeah. about some of you guys's maybe some resources, some software yeah. that you guys use, um, any programs, yeah, no, and, plugins, and things like that. To be clear, we're not trying to diminish those, but those are, I, I guess, we think those are things you have to earn, right? You have yeah, to get to the point. Sure. With where where you're growing towards them, yeah. Um, that's when well, Marty really... Marty owns a recording studio in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. So I mean, oh, wow. we're, all of us are, yeah. Um, can be quite particular about uh, that stuff. But I, sure. I think it's just it's important to almost on a regular basis routinely remind ourselves that. Mm -hmm. In this is one of the things that made me want to be a composer in general. Like the idea of the real book. Um, I became fascinated. Not with it from like a jazz performance standpoint, but that the idea that you could take the essence of a song and put it into a page. Mm. Just visuals. You can notate what's the melody and what the chords are, and then you write the name of the song on top, and that's the song. Mm. And I, there's something to me, I like that. I think some of the my, my favorite music can be treated that way, whether it's a, a, a Koji Kondo piece or a, a John Williams theme um, or a great classical melody. I mean, I know right. not not all music functions that way and sometimes it really is the sum of its parts and it is all the little details and we talked about voicings of chords and everything um that being said i do think when those primary aspects are all firing melody harmony and rhythm you can kind of condense it into this thing and it doesn't need flashy tricks it doesn't yeah. need a great instrument it doesn't need technology you can just be reading a chart and plunking chords out on a piano and you know singing a melody and it's like that's a song and sure. it has in general, this identity think, and it makes you feel a certain way i think having the right tools having the right gear is a way to sometimes bring those ideas to to fruition and bring them as far as they need to go right uh there's there's a couple of uh, pieces of equipment that all three of us could not live without the first being our daw all three of us exclusively use reaper okay uh so when it comes to actually producing and recording music that is that we could not be uh more fan bigger fans of of reaper it's just it, everything we ever really needed to do it, it can do yeah. sometimes it's maybe a little bit more involved and tedious than other software would be but you can get the results that you're looking for sure uh, so i find we're it so much less tedious reaper. than like pro tools i mean i have oh my gosh cubase yeah. or anything but i've i've see i've used a lot of different daws and nothing comes close to uh just how smooth and fluid uh reaper is and there's so reaper is always trying to work with you and trying to make your job easier and they mm -hmm. give you so many different options to do that whereas a lot of the other does it feels like you're fighting against it sure. to try to do what yeah. you want it to do so yeah so that's one thing um one a couple other things personally that i couldn't live without when i make video game music the two biggest pieces of software that that i use would be fm drive if i'm going to do genesis stuff i i just adore that also chip sounds i use all the time and that's a just a wonderful tool to make a wide variety of chip stuff there's a lot mm. of customization it's midi so that i get to write something by playing it on a keyboard so for me that's the best way to write i'm not big into trackers it's just not something that ever works for me mm. i know will is is more into that world um having a, some sort of keyboard is is i could not compose without that a midi keyboard um also a mini keyboard 
uh, a little small little Casio, that I would not be a good composer without that thing. Because sometimes you're away from technology, mm. and if you're laying in bed and you have your mini keyboard next to you, that's the time when maybe an idea strikes. Yeah. Uh, also, the voice memo feature on iPhones. Love we that would be thing. Nowhere. Yeah, love we that would thing. be nowhere without that. Yeah. Uh, so the, those are the just the Casio thing is important for video game music. It it's a way of getting you into the right headspace. But sure. even for non-video game music stuff, it's sort of humbling. It forces the ideas mm-hmm. to, be to be good, good. and not re- uh, not relying on any kind of timbre. Like I. I started coming up with these ideas for a new choral piece yesterday. Mm. Just in the morning, I was playing my little mini Casio keyboard. And I think a lot of people would be like, oh, those sounds are so bad. But again, I think most of us, the average person in the 21st century, at least in America, because that's what I, all I can speak for, I think we're, we're so much more literate in sound than we are in music. We're so used to hearing like, oh, that sounds cheesy. That sounds good. And it has nothing yeah. to do with the music and has all to do with the, the timbre, the fidelity, the production. Sure. Um, and I, I think I like those things that force me to listen to the music, to listen to the pitches mm-hmm. themselves and not so concerned with the quote unquote sound, even though that is a part of a composer's responsibility. Sure. So I really agree with Carl in in that regard. I, I am... Um, as far as trackers go, for me, Fami Tracker is the only one I'm proficient in, and it's the only one I really care to be proficient in because I, I really, the NES is something where I, I do actually have a huge fondness for all of those sounds. There's a simplicity to the the three channel thing. Mm-hmm. I, also, a lot of a lot of people that uh, write for Fami Tracker, they like to use the extensions VRC six and mm-hmm. really make it as wild and epic as possible. I really like the idea of making something with just the three pitch channels because compositionally that's what is so great about so much of that early music so if i'm trying to do something like that that goes away when you have you know five or six channels Mm -hmm. um so that's something that's important uh to me and why i use famitracker i i also use reaper like carl said when i'm doing orchestral stuff um i will tend to use East-West Quantum Leap, Hollywood Strings, occasionally Brass. Yeah. I'm very partial to uh, the company Cinesamples. Okay. They, they have so many fantastic products. They have, I think, some of the best woodwind and, and brass samples around. And uh, solo they string have, stuff. They have some great, yeah, yeah. solo instruments. They have, um, there's this one I have called Randy's Celeste, mm-hmm. which is uh, modeled after a specific uh, keyboard synth player, and it's basically the sound of the celeste that you hear in Harry Potter, which is a synth celeste that mixes samples with synth elements. Wow! Uh, they're 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 fantastic. I use their stuff all the time, and they're actually all very affordable mm-hmm. um, relative to a lot of other virtual instrument libraries, and pretty much ready to go. There's mm-hmm. much less kind of massaging and, and sculpting right. that stuff. So Another I, I find myself that, using that all the time. That we are big fans of. We're really big fans of free plugins that offer a lot of control. Uh, there's a lot of great free plugins out there. If you're trying to save money and try to develop it as like an engineer, get as many 